Here is one of a series of talks by spiritual leader Lola McDowell Lee, spanning two decades from the early 70s through the 90s. Lola was a Zen Roshi, whose Rinzai lineage included Dr. Henry Platov and renowned Zen master Shigetsu Sasaki. Lola was a religious scholar as well as an ordained Christian minister. While the talks are focused mainly on Zen and Buddhism, Lola drew on many spiritual traditions, including those of Jesus, Plato, Lao Tzu, the Hindu Vedas, Meister Eckhart, and Gurdjieff. Uh, if one begins at all to study um, Buddhism, one very quickly uh, runs into this uh, phrase, the word, and in, in uh, Ceylon they call it the Dhammapada. I'm going to read you a little bit out of it today, and maybe next week, and maybe the week after. <laughs> and in this little thing begins, we are what we think. All that we are arises from our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. Speak or act with an impure mind, and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. Speak or act with a pure mind, and happiness will follow you as your shadow, unshakable. In this world, hate never yet dispelled hate. Only love dispels hate, and this is the law, ancient and inexhaustible. You too shall pass away. Knowing this, how can you quarrel? How easily the wind overturns a frail tree. Seek happiness in the senses, indulge in food and sleep, and you too will be uprooted. The wind cannot overturn a mountain. Temptation cannot touch the man who is awake, strong, and humble, who masters himself and minds the law. If a man's thoughts are muddy, if he is reckless and full of deceit, how can he wear the yellow robe? Whoever is master of his own nature, bright, clear, and true, he may indeed wear the yellow robe. So that's a translation, and it's one of many, you know, different translations of the Dhammapada, the beginning of the Dhammapada, or uh, the Dharmapada, which is uh, a word, it's called uh, uh, Buddha's hymn of victory. That's nice, huh? Hymn of victory. And it's a compilation of his sayings about the Dharma and the way. And uh, such as there is another translation, and it goes like this. Whatsoever there is of evil, connected with evil, belonging to evil, all issues from the mind. Whatsoever there is of good, connected with good, belonging to good, all issues from the mind. Yeah? So, if one were to practice meditation with something like these statements in mind, it's very possible that you might arrive at a place, shall we call it a position, where you might understand the problem of good and evil. Hmm? And not just the label of good and evil that people <coughs> wrestle around with, you know, these words, but really to understand it. And it's a problem that has troubled a great many people. People have written books about good and evil and the problems thereof. 
you know, theologians in particular are overly concerned with this good and evil because, you know, why is there evil in the first place? Hmm? Yeah. And theologians come up with uh, questions all over the place anyway, and they, they think of such, such things as uh, how many angels dance, you know, on the point of a pin. But there's this problem of good and evil. Anyway, uh, the Dharma, Dharma is a term, and it seems to us, in its translation, it seems that it has many meanings. The Dharma is the Dharma. When you understand the Dharma, that's what it is. But in translation from the Sanskrit uh, to English or French or German or whatever, you know, uh, it has several meanings, we would say. It means, for one thing, the ultimate law. It is the, um, we could say, the word. It is that which keeps the universe uh, in harmony and uh, keeps it proceeding as it does. And it's invisible. It's intangible. Hmm? But that it is, is a certainty. You know, all you have to do is look around, you know, witness it. In the spring, the grass grows by itself. Hmm? Yeah. And the black crow cries in the white snow. Rain falls and sun shines. Hmm? Everything is connected with everything else. There is something that bridges everything. And so we're not islands. We are in this dharma. We are the dharmas within the dharma. Hmm? You know, so the Upanishads can say, it is he that has gone abroad. Yeah. Now, we know that in um, uh, the esoteric tradition and the parlance thereof, people are always looking to meet a master. There is the master um, Kutumi, and there is the master Moria, and there is the master um, Hilarion, I have Hilarious. And so on, you know, there are these seven great masters in the esoteric thing. And they are called the hierarchy. And so that everybody is somewhere on the rung of this ladder in this hierarchy, climbing up so that someday they can either meet one of these masters or evolve enough so they can take their places. Yeah? Yeah, some people do aspire to this. Uh, this is this is the esoteric thing. Yeah, in existence itself, in existence itself, there is no hierarchy. There isn't. No, nothing is small and nothing is great. Yeah. It's existence. Yeah. The greatest star and the smallest blade of grass, they exist mutually. They exist equally. So the Dharma has another meaning, in a way. Equality. A non-hierarchic existence. Hmm? There's no class boundaries. You belong here, and you belong here, and you belong here. Hmm? Uh, classifying. No. Everything is a unity. Everything fits in with everything else. And whatever happens, happens without prejudice in the whole unity. Prejudice is here. Yeah. So birth is right and death is right. Beauty is right and ugly is right. Noise is right. 
But in the midst of all of this unity and everything fitting together so neatly, we have our minds to deal with. That is the content of the mind. And if we do observe the mind at all, I mean, you know, really observe it, we begin to perceive that our comprehension of existence, of ourselves, of the whole thing, is very limited. We perceive and we think in fragments. It's something like as if we were perched behind a door and we're looking through the keyhole. And from the keyhole, and we have a little glimpse of the street. And we see things then in this keyhole. Somebody is moving. Oh, look, huh? A cat passes by. One moment, you know, it was not there. One moment, it is there. And another moment, it's gone. And we're sitting there with this perception through the keyhole. This is the way we look at existence. Yeah. We say that something is in the future, so it's not here yet. Yeah. And then it comes into the present. And then it goes into the, we say, past. Huh? That's our invention time. So simple, huh? Yeah. Time is our keyhole. And all this rigmarole we talk about, you know, time is another dimension and trying to fit it in here and fit it there. And fit it in there. It's just the way we look at things. Yeah. You know, a person is here and then suddenly he appears and then just as suddenly he seems to disappear. First he was in the future, then he appears in the present, and then he disappears. And so we say he's in the past. This is the past. He is no longer. So our way of seeing is very limited and fragmented. Huh? This is all we see, what's going on here and what's going on here. We don't know. We don't see it. I mean, you know, if you had a movable door and could move it around like this, you would still, you know, you could do the whole thing this way, whole 180 degrees, but you would still, still be seeing only the fragments. Yeah. <clears throat> now, so you can see how limited we are. And within these limitations, we have got all kinds of questions. You know, where were you before you got here? And where did you go after you left here? And why is this? Where did spring go when it left? Yeah. Where does the snow go when it leaves? Why? Why this? Why that? Hmm? Why misery? Why anguish? But if you could see the totality, you know, see everything all at one time, one swoop, huh? All the whys would disappear. But to see the whole, to see that totality, you have to come out from behind the door. That's your job, to come out from behind the door. You have to drop your keyhole vision. You know, with these hands, how much can you grasp? Not much, they're very little. What are you going to grasp with the ears? Not much. A fragment. Hmm? What can we grasp with these eyes? <laughs> and yet, with these fragments, we build a picture in the mind. And then we think that that picture made of fragments, raggle taggle ends, we say that that picture is the way things are. Hmm? Not only that, we are overly attached to these pictures, to these fragments, these little pieces, rhino tangle ends. 
They're very attached to them. Now, for the Western world, I'm still with the word Dhamma or Dharma. For the Western world, uh, Dharma could be taken to mean God. Uh, except that Buddha didn't use the word God. And even at that time, 2,500 years ago, he wanted to help break identification. Yeah. And it was even in India at that time. Huh? And uh, people thought, because he didn't use the word God, that he was an atheist. And he isn't. He just never used the word God. He just simply said, that which is. That which is, is the presence of the law, the Dharma. Hmm? Isn't that simple? Now, Dharma also means uh, the ultimate truth. Hmm? The ultimate truth. When the ego disappears, say you set it aside for a moment, ego disappears. What remains? Well, certainly something remains, otherwise you would disappear. Hmm? Something remains. The problem is, is that it cannot be called a something. Here comes language difficulty, huh? And because you cannot call it a something, it is called a nothing. And some people say, well, that means no thing. But this is not really what is meant by nothing. This is just a way of trying to, just playing with words. But we will often say it means no thing, nothing. In order to understand this nothing, you have to have the experience of nothing. You can't find it looking through your keyhole. And you can't rationalize it. It is something that you have to experience. This ultimate law is not a thing. It's not something you can take your pen down and, oh yeah, there it's written in the sky, I'll copy it down and everybody can see it. You can't do that. Hmm? And it's not something you can pick up and examine and then give it to somebody else. No. <clears throat> so what is this truth that is called nothing? It's not a theory, it's not a hypothesis, and each one has to come upon it in his own way. And if you can be absolutely alone, you will find it. And by that I don't mean you leave your house and your family and all that kind of stuff and go live someplace else. Aloneness is here. Okay, so much for the dharma. Pada. Now comes the pada part. The dharma pada. And it also has several meanings. The most fundamental one is simply path. So this is the path of the dharma. Now we know that a path can be described. I walked such and such a way and it was rocky and it was hilly and so a path can be described. Huh? And there are paths existent today. Which one of them you choose is up to you. And it's better if you choose one than try to grasp them all. Yeah, you will wind up in confusion. When one has reached the goal of the path, you can tell somebody else about the geography. And... Uh, 
or somebody else's has reached the goal, they can give you a map. This is how you get here. But they can't tell you how it feels to stand on that mountain peak. You know, if somebody could ask, well, they did ask him, Edmund Hillary, you know, he climbed the uh, Gauri Shankar mountain in the Himalayas. Uh, and he can give you a map of how he went up that mountain. Yeah. But if you asked him how he felt when he stood there on that peak, you know, what could he say? You know, he could say it was beautiful, it was wonderful, it was marvelous, all beggaring the situation, those words, huh? They don't really tell you much of anything. You know. For if you, somebody says wonderful, your interpretation of the word wonderful is yours. It wasn't his. And the same with marvelous and the same with beautiful. So what has he said? No. The freedom that he must have felt, you know, when he stood on his highest mountain peak, you know, and it's all this sky you know, and the height, the snow and the clouds and the sun, you know, and he was standing on a place no human being had ever stood before. And you're going to understand his wonderful? Yeah. And all the silence that must have been there. Hmm? One has to be on that mountain peak to know it. That's the experience. You know, they keep talking about Jesus went up in the mountain and was transfigured. Yeah. So, Pada is a path. And Pada also means a step. And so it also means a foot. And it also has a connotation of foundation. <clears throat> to move the foot, to step, to step onto a foundation. Pada, huh? Moving from where you are, you know, the realizing that you are a great process, that you are a process, not just looking for it, oh, I plant a seed and it comes up and then it finally comes a flower and then it dies, that's a process. But you are a process. Hmm? You are a growth. And then not to allow yourself to become a stagnant pool, you know, flow like a river, or uh, flow like the river that reaches the ocean, uh, which is simply to step into the Dharma, reaching the ocean, huh? <clears throat> Without relating in some way to this ultimate law, to this ultimate truth, You know, our lives, you know, don't have much foundation. If there cannot be some kind of a relationship, you know, and, and our lives act without it don't have much meaning, and it doesn't have much significance without it. Yeah. And if you do not have this significance and this meaning in your life, where are you going to find shelter? Hmm? You know, it's like we're drifting along. We're a piece of driftwood in the river. We're at the mercy of the winds. And we're not knowing where we're going, nor who we are. So, a search, a very passionate search, realizing this process, you know, it creates a state where one can step onto the foundation into your shelter. So when we read or when we hear uh, these verses of this uh, Dharma Padva, you know, we try to make of ourselves like a sponge uh, or like a tape recorder. You know, we don't sit there judging. Because if we're judging, uh, we miss something very important about ourselves. And we don't constantly chatter in the mind whether it's right or whether it's wrong. 
because, you know, whether it's right or whether it's wrong, is like this man said, all the business of life is in, to endeavor to find out what you don't know by what you do. What you do know, or what you think you know, with that you try to find out what you don't know. And you don't even know what you know is right or not. So we're in a, you know, with this keyhole vision, we're in a, we're in a pickle. Yeah? So. so when you come across something like this, rather than judging it, saying, well, this is too simple, we are what we think. You know, everybody knows that. Well, do you? Really? Yeah. So let's first try to understand uh, what this man was trying to say, actually, so that we can understand exactly what he means. Hmm? And the beauty of the whole thing is that when you understand exactly what he means, you have transcended all the words. And you know it's truth. And you know, truth has its own way of convincing. Yeah? It never argues. Yeah. It just is. So, he starts off with, we are, or this, they have compiled it in this fashion. We are what we think. What we are rises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. Yeah. Which kind of reminds me of Rilke, huh? When he says in his poem, Du hast die Welt gemacht. You have made the world. Yeah. Of course, the poem that he wrote has a different connotation. Because he says, slowly, you raise a shadowy black tree and fix it on the sky, slender, alone. And you have made the world, and it shall grow and ripen as a word, unspoken still. You know, there's so many ways, and so many times it has been said, and it's been given to us, by those who wish to share. And the understanding, it seems to be so difficult to come by. You have made the world. Yeah. Now the world, and using the term that the Buddha used, the samsara, the illusory world, it's not an illusion, as the uh, people who uh, say it's all maya. Uh, it's all an illusion, and it, so that means it doesn't exist. But it does exist. Uh, it is an illusory world because we're sitting behind the keyhole. The world that you create that you spin and that you weave, you know, it's like you're a little spider and and then you run around in the web that you've woven. And the wheel of mind goes on spinning and moving and moving and moving. Unless we become untracked by this mind, huh? We will never know the inner substance. All that we think we are rises with our thoughts. When you were so high and started to think, uh-huh, the thoughts that rose then, and you built on them and 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 built on them. All that we think we are rises with our thoughts, you know, and we think, I'm rejected, I'm accepted, I am this, I am that, I'm the other thing. That's your world. 
your stomach. It rolls with your thoughts. Hmm? So just imagine for a moment, you're sitting there, and you can imagine for one minute that all the thoughts have ceased. Then who are you? You can't say, I am called thus and so. That's the content of the mind. That's a thought. My name is Lola. That's a thought. You can't say, I'm a Protestant. I am a Hindu. I am a Buddhist. I am a Catholic. All this you cannot say without a thought. You cannot say to which country you belong. You cannot say anything about anything you have ever read. You cannot quote scripture. You cannot say anything about anything you have ever heard. You cannot say I am a man. You cannot say I am a woman. These are all thoughts. Now, when the thoughts cease, who are you? <clears throat> now, Buddha used a very strange word, term. Nobody had ever done such a thing before. He said, no self. Self, when you use the word self, it continues to give you this sense of ego. Hmm? So he had this anatta doctrine. Uh, no self. Anatta is no self. When the content of the mind is not, hmm? when you've gone beyond the boundaries of the ego, you are uncontaminated by anything. And so they say you are a mirror reflecting. Mirror. Hmm? You know the word, the name Mary. Mary. It comes from the French word. There is a French word, mère, M-E-R-E, which means mother. Mère and Mary and all like in there, you know, they have the same root. And that root is the word mirror. So when Jesus asked, you know, when they told him his mother was outside waiting, he wanted to come to the party. And he said, who is my mother? So if you want to know, I'm not going to tell you, you know, if you want to know. <laughs> Who you are, you ignore the activity of the mind. You move into this space of no mind, which is the mind itself. Hmm. The moving from the mind to the no mind is the step pada. Hmm. You step into the dharma. Dharmapada. Speak or act with an impure mind, and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. Well, let's first of all be a little careful with these words pure and impure. <clears throat> They're very easily misunderstood and the mostly misunderstood. Mind as such, mind as it is, is pure. Never was anything but pure, never will be anything but pure. Mind is pure. Right, so where do they get the impure stuff? Yeah. Um, impurities of the mind are not dirty words. Hmm. Impurities would be all thoughts. Uh, 
it could be, you know, because with, within these thoughts we find there are those who uh, don't know who they are, but who pretend that they know to some degree. A pretending that they know what the goal is or, you know, because they've thought about it and that they know what life is meant to be. And that brings misery, as certainly as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. You know, because that's all ego, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Speak or act with a pure mind, and happiness will follow you as your shadow, unshakable. Uh, very difficult, I think, to convey some of this. It seems so simple on the surface. You know, everybody has heard this. A lot of people have gone to other religions and religious science and uh, science of mind and, and the Protestant religions, you know, and they, they talk like this and we think, oh, sure, we know what this is all about. Mm-hmm. No. Well, we got to go a little deeper than that. No mind. Uh, it's ordinary language that we use with extraordinary meanings. And this is a problem. So a new language really is needed, and it seems to me that every teacher I've ever known has said the same thing. There is a new language that is needed. And of course, Sanskrit was developed many thousands of years ago to describe states of consciousness and it is known as a technical language. Somebody did develop a new language. But then we don't know that either, that language. And even so, uh, the experience must still be there or the understanding lags behind the words. Hmm? We can see this now and then, huh? that understanding lags behind the words, like a cart following an ox. Yeah. Now, if somebody today used an absolutely new language, nobody would understand it. You know, it's, we would call it gibberish. And the word gibberish comes from a Sufi. His name was Jabbar. He invented a new language. Yeah. So he stands out there in, in, the, in the court in the middle of the town and he goes, <laughs> you know, and nobody could understand what he's talking about. It. So he stood there, you know, uttering nonsense, and they call it gibberish. That was his language. And uh, we can listen to, uh, most of us can listen to Japanese, and it's sort of like gibberish. And we can listen to French, and it's sort of like gibberish. And they listen to us, and it's gibberish. Hmm? We don't understand. But there was a fellow at one time uh, who visited China. And uh, a friend asked him when he came back, how do they find such strange names for people? They call them Ching, Chong, Chang, you know, all things like this. Or this man said, well, they have a way, you know. They collect all the spoons in the house and they throw them upwards, and when they fall down, they got Ching, Chang, <laughs> Chong. <laughs> yeah. Well, but it didn't. the language of his day in order to convey his meanings. These are carriers. The words are carriers for meaning. Yeah. And, you know, words that in this case, uh, you know, they're a barrier. <clears throat> Jesus used the language of his day, and we find it a little changed since then. But these men when they spoke, 
they gave a, a, a flavor, let us call it, instead of a frequency. They gave a flavor to their words. Huh? They gave a color to them. The bottles we put them in are ours, but the wine is theirs. Hmm? But you know, we know that the bottles are ours, and we think that the bottles are ours, so we think the wine is ours also. Buddha used the language, but surely, you know, at his stature, you know, he gave twists and turns to words in such a subtle way that even the people, you know, who knew the language so well were not alerted, you know. They thought it was just language. And they did hear these twists and the turns and the flavor and the color. So he said, no mind. They had been using in India up till that time, pure mind. Purify your mind. Purify your mind. And people misunderstood. And if you say no mind, that's also impossible to understand. But people think they understand, you know, pure mind. Well, the best of all, I guess we can say it's a kind of a hook, you know, and somebody's fishing with a straight hook somewhere, somehow. Yeah. So. In this world, hate never yet dispelled hate. Only love dispels hate. And this is the law, ancient and inexhaustible. Yeah. It is eternal, it's ancient, and it's inexhaustible. The moment that you are aware, when you are aware, the moment that you are, you can't find any hate. Interesting that, huh? You try to hate somebody with awareness, it's impossible. You try it, it won't bite. You know, try it until you experience it. Yeah. You too shall pass away. Knowing this, how can you quarrel? You know, we have only a little short time here, actually. Why waste it in quarreling? Use that very same energy to become a light unto yourself. How easily the wind overturns a frail tree. Seek happiness in the senses, indulge in food and sleep, and you too will be uprooted. In our fragmentary view of this world, we are tremendously and I mean tremendously dependent upon the senses. Hmm? You have any idea how much? Now, dependence on these senses as necessary, and I mean as necessary as they are, but dependence upon them will not give you strength. The life that we lead, all the comings and the goings, hmm, is a constant change. What was yesterday is not today, what is today will not be tomorrow. It is a constant change. Where in all that change have you got shelter? Where do you have your foundation in all that change? You know, it isn't the eye alone that sees, 
Hmm? The eye is a window. When you stand at a window, you look out. And somebody that's passing by on the street looks, turns around and looks at the window. That person doesn't think the window is seeing me. Hmm? What is behind the eye? What is behind the window? The ear doesn't hear. It registers frequencies, you know, movement in the atmosphere. So who hears? Who is the one who feels? Transcending the senses, you know, and then allowing that state of transcendence within the senses. It's another way of living. And as the Zen masters say, you know, carrying water, chopping wood. Yeah. Then you depend upon the awareness. The awareness is the work, is the foundation that you have potted on, stepped on, huh? The wind cannot overtake, turn a mountain. Temptation cannot touch the man who is awake, strong, and humble, who masters himself and minds the law. Now, this um, witnessing consciousness is called pure. It stands alone. Pure witnessing consciousness. You have not got anything to do with it. Senses have not got anything to do with it. Huh? It stands all by itself. And an awakening then occurs. It's as if a snake had been coiled and suddenly it uncoils. And there is the awakening. Huh? It's as if somebody uh, was asleep and had been shaken awake. And for the first time then, you feel that you are. Now you have roots. Now you've got a foundation. And now you can be humble. Humbleness comes because now you are aware that the same witnessing exists in everyone. It exists in animals, in birds, and plants, and rocks. Different states of sleeping, you know? It's as if somebody slept on the right side, or somebody else slept on the left side, somebody else slept on the back, and somebody slept on the stomach. Huh? And in all of that sleeping consciousness, there is this tremendous intelligence that is present even in the sleep. Huh? How else would you exist? Yeah. And this makes one humble. And when you observe a rock, then you know that you're nobody special. That the whole of existence is made of the same stuff. If a man's thoughts or muddy. If he is reckless and full of deceit, how can he wear a yellow robe? Well, Buddha, you know, he chose the color yellow, or they call it yellow, it's kind of a saffron, you know, uh, so that as the monks went about the villages, you know, they would remember this 2,500 years ago, as they went around begging, you know, the, the, uh, the people in the villages would know that they were from a particular Sangha, that they were followers of the Buddha, they were Buddhists, and that they would know that this person who was begging for the Sangha, you know, who was one who was practicing meditation, was one to be honored. He was a follower of the Buddha. 
that he was in training to know the no mind. He was one in training to free the mind. For whoever is master of his own nature, bright, clear, and true, of your own nature, it goes for everybody, bright, clear, and true, he indeed may wear the yellow robe. Let it not escape from you. So in our goings on, sometimes we come in here and there's a little phrase. Uh, you walk in and just be very still for a minute. And these words, an empty chair, a silent hall. How eloquent. How rare. Now may the peace and the power that passeth all understanding hold us and keep us in the love of the Christed consciousness while we are seemingly separate one from another. And I thank you very much. If you find Lola's talks valuable, more will be posted in weeks to come.